Good morning. It is good to see your smiling faces once again. A um, couple of things before we actually dive into the text. Uh, first of all, let me say that the members' meeting tonight is not to be a mystery. Um, and let me spike a rumor, or at least a question. Somebody apparently was wondering if I was announcing my retirement. Uh, the answer is no. I'm not saying it's not on my mind. I'm simply, it just goes with being in your 60s, I guess. Um, but no, that tonight is going to be about some rather straightforward things, one of which is we have a proposal to improve the sound in here with some more speakers. For those of you who are struggling to hear in the back, we've got a proposal for that tonight. Uh, I'm going to talk a little about some remodeling of that area back there where the soundboard is, and then really the more, actually to me, the more vital important thing is we're going to talk about um, associate pastor, fellow that we'd like to bring, and talk about some dollars connected to that. So I know a lot about money tonight. And um, anyway, just pray about that, and that's what the conversation is this evening, okay? No, no big secrets, and if there's anything else, nobody's told me, and I'll be surprised along with the rest of you. Um, next, thank you to the men who stood in for me the last couple of weeks. My elders and others, thank you, my brothers. You cared well for this church, and I deeply, deeply appreciate what you have done. All right. <clears throat> you enjoyed, well, I'll rephrase that. You were encouraged, I hope, and exhorted as we went through 1 Peter. Doesn't seem appropriate then not to go to the next epistle. So 2 Peter chapter 1, as we consider, in this case, faithful reminders for foolish times. That's going to be the theme, faithful reminders for foolish times. So 2 Peter, the first chapter, the first two verses, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is the word of our great God. Let's pray. And now, Father, by your Spirit, help us. Oh, Lord, we are feeble, we're weak, we're forgetful. Help us to be reminded and to rejoice in what you have given us. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. I forgot. You've said it. I've said it. We have a congenital problem that makes memory a problem. So we try to train our memories. Um, we've watched with amazement as memory experts have demonstrated their prowess at memorizing, say, the names in a studio audience. And 
One fellow said that all you have to do is associate a visual, even a silly visual, with a person's face and you can remember their name. So, you know, like with Doug Shivers, I don't know what the visual would be there. Um, Maybe some guy digging snow in a blizzard, wearing shorts and a t-shirt, shaking from the cold. I I don't know. I I guess I, I never was very good at it. It seemed to me that you were doubling or tripling the amount of memory you had to use to remember one thing. Instead of just remembering the name, then I had to remember the image to go with the name and interpret the image so I'd know the name. Man, that seemed like a lot of work. We use calendars. We use digital apps. We have beeping reminders to try and keep on track. And in the things that matter most, sometimes we just don't get it right. We fail. I do a show of hands, but there's no sense starting a fight. Some of you have forgotten anniversaries. I know, I never should have brought it up. Or birthdays, or appointments. That's always fun. I, one of my predecessors apparently forgot he had a wedding one Saturday and got a call just a few minutes before the wedding was supposed to begin. That's the stuff of pastoral nightmares. I will just tell you up front. That's the stuff that makes you sit up in a cold sweat when you're in pastoral ministry. Um, Several years ago, a movement swept the United States called Promise Keepers. Large rallies where thousands and thousands of men were reminded of and encouraged to keep their promises to their wives and children. A generation before that was an assumption such promises would be kept, but the failure rate was so high we had to create a new conference schedule, teaching materials, etc., to remind men to be men. Now, I know I'm saying something that is considered toxic right now, but let me clarify something for you. I don't care. We're killing our young men. We're destroying our children. Boys, it's good to be a boy. And it's fine to grow up and be a man. Amen, I heard that right there up front. Just as girls, it's good to be a girl. Okay? Folks, do you understand? When we mess that up, I'm not sure where you go from there. Well, I am, but you don't want to hear about that this morning. On the most important things, the things that matter for eternity... We need reminders, and we need the discipline and work of the Spirit to make use of those reminders. Peter's second letter is a reminder letter, and a very vigorous one at that. I think it's about 18 different times the word remember or remind or memory shows up in this little short letter. Peter probably writes this from Rome not too long before his martyrdom, somewhere around 64 to 67 A.D., Uh, probably wrote during the time of persecution by Rome, perhaps during the persecution uh, by Nero, who dies in 68. Peter himself is likely in a Roman prison awaiting imminent execution. The dating of the letter depends largely on the dating of Simon Peter's death. Uh, When you look at this, when you read this letter, the tone is different than 1 Peter. It's more polemical than pastoral. That is, it's taking things on. It's a fight that's being addressed here. The strength of the words. In essence, it's a fighting letter more than a friendly one. 
In this respect, the letter is surprisingly belligerent, as David Helm says. Second Peter holds nothing back in the use of controversial argument, insult, and hyperbole in his battle with those who disagree. Make no mistake, no mistake, the letter wars over what constitutes the true knowledge of God. Now this letter is certainly appealing in our time. We face a number of challenges. Now in 1 Peter, he's preparing us for persecution from the outside. In 2 Peter, he's preparing us against apostasy and failure from the inside. Seems so appropriate now, doesn't it? After all, things are worse now than they've ever been. Right? That that's, seems to be the take, isn't it? Listen to these words from another brother in a sermon from this text. Listen to these words. If we regard human history from a spiritual standpoint, we must be impressed by the fact that the essential character of life in this world does not change. We may regard certain things today as being terrible and serious, and we feel that by contrast with these things, the circumstances confronting the people 2,000 years ago were almost trivial. Yet we have to realize and to remember that the problems they experienced were as grievous and as serious to them as our problems are to us today. The world is a place of difficulty. And I say we find that these people in their age and time, as we and ours, were conscious of terrible problems. Now, folks, that is not only accurate. Can I give you a little context? That was preached by Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in the latter part of 1946. You see, we are so arrogant and so self-centered. We just assume it's never been harder for anybody ever to be a Christian than it is for us today. It's just horrible. Let's sit around and commiserate about how awful it is. The early church did that a lot, didn't they? They sat around and moaned and groaned and felt sorry for themselves about how terrible their lot was in life. I am being facetious intentionally. Grow up, wake up, get over it. You live in a fallen world. You have an enemy who hates God and hates you. He is a spiritual enemy. We do not fight against flesh and blood. Oh, that needs to be written in stone somewhere in front of our eyes every single day as we angrily demonize sinners for being sinners. Who'd have thought? Yes, I've been off for a few weeks. A few things have been percolating in me. You see, we think we need new things. We think we need new ideas, new ways to deal with our challenges today. 
And my friend, believers, too easily we forget the most important things. Listen to the doctor once again. It's a very great mistake to think that because we know a thing, we do not need to be reminded of it repeatedly. Can I re repeat that for you? It's a very great mistake to think that because we know a thing, we need not be reminded of it repeatedly. You and I need reminders. We need to be reminded to remember. First, let's consider quickly the writer and recipients. Simeon Peter. Having two names was quite common in the Jewish community of the day. You would have a Jewish name and a Greek or Gentile name. In this case, Simeon, Simon. Simon and Simeon are the same name. They're just cognates and they were spelled a little differently, pronounced a little differently, but it is the same name. Simeon was his Jewish name. Peter was his Greek name. Petros, rock. This is the same Simon Peter who is among the first called to be apostles. It is the same Simon Peter who makes the great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the same Simon Peter that said, no, Lord, you must not die in essence. You will not be crucified. Don't say those things to whom Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Same Simon Peter who said, Lord, though all these forsake you, I won't forsake you. To whom Jesus said, Simon, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. And that's exactly what happened. And we read that poignant moment in one of the Gospels where as the rooster is crowing, Peter looks across the courtyard and meets Jesus' gaze toward him as he has just uttered a final curse and denial that he knows Jesus. It is the same Peter to whom Jesus said, Peter, after you're converted, strengthen the brothers. I don't think he was saying that Simon wasn't a believer. He's saying, after you get over this, comfort your brothers. I love Simon Peter deeply. He reminds me of, in some ways, myself, not in terms of character, but in terms of, on occasion, speaking faster than the brain was working. The letter, the recipients, to those. Now, that's not much help, is it? <laughs> to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It could be this is the same audience as the first letter, or it could be a specific church among those addressed in the first letter. But hear what he, he says to them. Those who have obtained a faith, and notice how he describes that faith, of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Your faith is of equal standing with ours. Peter is saying to a group of Gentiles, you're not second class. There's not a bifurcated gospel here. There's not a two-stage, a Jewish gospel and a Gentile gospel. It's all the same gospel. And what has happened to me as a pillar of the church, as an apostle, as the first one to give confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, to be the one who preached on the day of Pentecost and see thousands converted, to be the one who is now imprisoned and facing death, 
understand that what you have is the same as what I have. It is equal standing in this faith. That was a tough lesson for Simon Peter to learn. You remember his whole process, right? First to have the vision, then to go into the household of Cornelius, then to have the Jerusalem council, and then to have Paul at a point rebuke him because of the way he behaved. This was not easy for him. Listen to William Barclay as he quotes from a post-apostolic letter called the Epistle to Diogenetus. Christians are not marked out from the rest of mankind by their country or speech or their customs. They dwell in cities both Greek and barbarian. Each has his, as his lot is cast. Following the customs of the region in clothing and in food and in outward things of life generally, yet they manifest the wonderful and openly paradoxical character of their own state. They would inhabit the lands of their birth, but as temporary residents thereof, they take their share of all responsibilities as citizens and endure all disabilities as aliens. Every foreign land is their native land. Every native land is a foreign land. They pass their days upon earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. O oh, Christian, lay hold of that. Peter says, you Gentile Christians, without the patriarchs, without the covenants, without the promises, without the prophets, without the law, without the history, you've been granted the same salvation that I've been granted who had all those things. And this salvation is the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a shorthand way of referencing justification. You and I need righteousness, and the Lord gives us righteousness through our Savior, Jesus Christ, whom here he calls God quite clearly. Now, that's the writer and the recipients. What I'd have you spend a little more time on now is the longing that I see in every Christian heart in this wish prayer of verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. Herein is the great need for all of us. We need grace and peace, and we need it to be multiplied. We're given grace and peace and righteousness at the very beginning of our salvation, right? It is grace that the Lord seeks us and saves us. It is peace that He bestows on us. Being justified through faith, we have peace with God. That's the opening. That's the beginning. It is the essence of what it means to be Christian. It is certainly the work of the Spirit of God. But that work does not stay static. It expands. It continues. It multiplies. Christian, you, you really should get rather excited about this see if you're not rooted in knowledge by clear information and frequent meditation on the truth 
You've not had your hearts established with grace by frequent exercises. You're going to fall prey to soul deceivers. But if you know that this grace is at work in you and you believe that and you embrace that and you long for it to be multiplied, that multiplication comes through reminders. Why is reminding, why is remembering so important? Because first there is such a thing as truth. The true knowledge of God is a central theme throughout this letter. Chapter 1, verse 2, that you, this grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. It shows up again in chapter 2 at verse 20. For if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they again and entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become to, worse to them than the first. It shows up again in chapter 3 at verse 18. The knowledge of God in Christ is always in danger of being perverted to the destruction of those who embrace errors. We must remember because truth matters and because there's danger in false teachers and deadly heresies. Yes, my friend, there is such a thing as true and false. To go back to one of my mentors, Francis Schaeffer, the minute that you give up the concept this reasonable concept that of non-contradiction. That is, A, whatever A is, cannot at the same time in the same way be non-A. That's a fancy way of saying there's something that is true and the opposite of that thing is false. When you lose that, you have lost the basis for rational engagement in this world. And you've lost the possibility of ethics and morals that actually matter. My friend, this epistle is going to teach us there's a connection between deadly heresy and wicked living. They often go together. See, what I've discovered is most folks, whenever they quibble or shift on a doctrinal issue, more times than not, it's because they've got a moral problem. And the moral problem is pushing the change in the doctrinal. I want to do this, but it appears the Scripture says you can't do that. Well, I'm not going to be ungodly, so I will change what the doctrine is so I may now justify the way I want to live. The Scripture does not shift for us, my friends. The Lord condemns such things, and these people are arrogant, they're in bondage, and they're apostate. So what is it that we need to remember? Why is remembering important? Because there's such a thing in truth and such a thing as error. What should we remember? Well, I'll give you some quick themes to think about as we go through this letter together. Number one, you didn't do this yourself. Chapter 1, verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Did you get that? He granted to you. Didn't originate with you. It's not self-generated. It's not self-based. The first two verses we've looked at, this has been given to us, grace and peace multiplied to us, and it is not self-sustained. He's the one who sustains us. 
We should remember, secondly, you have what you need. I cannot tell you how many times I've looked at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1 and found encouragement, especially when it's been a very discouraging time. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Dr. Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, before he exhorts you to do anything, he reminds you again of what is done for you. We also should be reminded that you and I are to pursue what we are. Identity precedes activity. You don't live a Christian life to be a Christian. You're a Christian, and because of that, you live the Christian life. If you don't get this straight, my friend, sanctification becomes a nightmare. A nightmare of performance that's never good enough. A nightmare of slaving and laboring and never having any peace. You are His. He has made you His. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness. Now, go out and live. And you start at that fifth verse and He says, make every effort then to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. And it goes on through a whole list of things. You pursue what you are. This is evidence of your election. If you don't have any interest in holiness, my friend, if you make no effort toward holiness, then your election is not sure. Hear what I'm saying. I am not saying that your holiness saves you. I'm saying that if you are saved, you are interested in holiness. And that's all the difference in the world, my friend. Now, I know some of you say, well, I'm not very good at it. Find me somebody who is. I'm looking for that success story. There has been one success story in holiness. His name was Jesus. Well, I'm only getting a little bit better. That's good. Take a little bit. Run with that. Rejoice in that. Because, my friend, the, the outcome is not based on how much progress you make. Be careful that you don't judge people wrongly. See, this is the other danger. We start looking at other folks and how they're doing. Well, I don't know if so-and-so is doing so well. Who made you in charge of their life? I'm not saying that we never confront sin if it's open and out there. Scripture tells us to do that. But friend, don't you have enough to deal with with your own mess? Let me explain that to you. You do. And if you're thinking, well, I've got it under control, God have mercy. He'll show you how little control you have over your life. We are to pursue this. You have the certainty, my friend, of the word both incarnate and written. Jesus has come. The end of that first chapter at verse 16, he says, We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And he goes on then to talk about the transfiguration. And that transfiguration, according to Peter, is not a myth, but it's a fact. 
The word incarnate has come, and we have the certainty of this prophetic word. Notice toward the end there, knowing verse 20, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Also, you must wait patiently for the judgment. The denial of the Lord's coming in judgment is a soul-destroying error. He shall come, but it's His timing, not ours. Now, I know all, uh, this happens on a regular basis. I do this by clockwork anymore. I've always got somebody who comes to me and says, Pastor, I've got this book, and it's telling how this is the end. Here it is. I want you to read this book. Okay, I'll take your book. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you, it won't take me long to read it. Because they're wrong. Or maybe they're right. But see, that goes back to that self-centeredness. It has to be us. It has to be now. This must be what's going on. My brothers and sisters, I have watched this now for four decades plus, nearly five. Let me let you on a little secret. They've all been wrong. Every single one of them. Well, it's never been like this. Don't show your ignorance, my friend. How much do you know of history? How much do you know of other cultures? How much do you see beyond what's at the end of your own nose? Live like He's coming today. Work like He's not coming for a million years. I know Father's Day. It should have been a nice Father's Day message. My brothers and sisters, here's what happens. We, we have been grasped by this glorious gospel. We've been found. I, I read this. I thought this was a brilliant illustration. Um, Carol Ravolo did a little book on Peter called Grace to Stand Firm, Grace to Grow. And I loved how she illustrated what has happened to us. And I, and I want us to ponder this a little bit as I pull this together. Our lost condition, when we were lost, and my friend, if you're not a Christian today, I hope you'll hear these words. Our lost condition is a little like standing in a refreshing spring rain without any awareness that we're thirsty. The part of our brains that tells us we need water has been damaged so badly it no longer works. Without medical intervention, we'll die of thirst even while pure water is drenching us through the skin. As long as we don't know that we need the water to live, we don't see its value and even think it's a nuisance. But if someone comes to our rescue, intervenes with appropriate medical aid, and awakens us to our need, we see the rain in a new light. And, acutely senses, and we acutely sense our desperation we now have a taste for the water and want it intensely, but have no cup to collect it since we're devoid of resources. We can't make or buy a cup, so we cry out for help to the same person who enabled us to see our need. If we can be given a cup, we can accept the rain. The person who comes to our aid is God, the rain is grace, and the medical aid is the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and the cup is faith. Ooh, I pondered that a little this week. Christian, is that not what happened? For a while, all this talk about grace, it's like, yeah, yeah, grace comes on. And then one day, all at once, it was like, oh my word, 
soul. How desperately I need this. I need Him. I'll trust Him. And that was because the Spirit of God came. <laughs> and now, Christian, you and I are to live with this being multiplied to us. Now, what, what is that multiply? It's like getting this glorious gift that is salvation. And you think it's this, and it is, okay? You've got your package, salvation, your gift, there it is. It's so good. And then you find out that the packages keep coming. And it's the same thing in the package. It's just a little bigger, a little broader, a little deeper. This is why I, I struggle with folks who act like, well, don't talk to me about salvation. I already know about salvation. Every time I hear somebody say, well, quit preaching about salvation. I need something deeper. You don't understand salvation. Then. It doesn't get deeper, broader, better than this. And so, grace, Christian, is to be multiplied in your life. Because, see, at the beginning, you don't even know how much grace you need. Right? You, I need my sins forgiven. Amen. You do. That's wonderful, glorious grace. But then you find out, I'm still sinning. I need grace multiplied. There's sin I didn't even recognize. I need grace multiplied. See, if you just get one little package of grace and it covers the immediate, then what do you do about when you fail afterwards? This is the lack of every works religion because grace is not multiplied, it's parceled. Peace multiplied. Righteousness multiplied in the knowledge of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One brother said it this way, the grace of God in the heart of man is a tender plant in a strange, unkindly soil <laughs> and therefore cannot well prosper and grow without much care and pains and that of a skillful hand which has the art of cherishing it. That's what the Lord does. You see, to me, this echoes in many ways Paul's statement in Romans 1 when he says, through whom, that is Christ, we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Peter's saying the same thing. This grace has come to you. And Christian, I'm saying it to you today here, right here in this auditorium in Springfield, Missouri, in the United States of America in this the 21st century. If you don't know Christ, you can. Repent of your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll heal you. Christian, what you need has been given to you and is being given to you. Well, how, how do I find it? How do I recognize it? It's handed to you. Open your eyes. Ask for the Lord to give you sight. 
Your problem isn't that it's not there. It's the problem is that you're not seeing it. Well, how do you know it's there? Because he said it is. Is that enough? I don't know. Is believing God's word enough? Hmm. That's really a pretty straightforward question on the quiz of Christian doctrine. Right? When God speaks, what am I supposed to do? Believe. My friend, let us glory in this reality. He has rescued us. And he continues to pour out on us all that we need. And we can fight as we need to against a world that hates us. And we can do battle, if we must, against false doctrine that would reduce us and destroy and crush us from the inside. But you see, the focus ought not be on that world out there that's opposed to us, and the focus ought not to be heresy hunters looking for the trouble in here. The focus is, may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be multiplied on us so that as that's being multiplied, these other things are dealt with. May he grant that. Father, we pray that we'd be diligent. Oh, Lord, I do pray that we would diligently live godly lives in the world that is so ungodly. Father, may we never compromise the truth so we can get along in this world. May we know that this world and everything in it is passing away. That the seen things, the things we see are transient, the unseen things are eternal, and may that be reflected in the way we live in relationship to the world around us. But Lord, on the inside as well, save us, Lord, from being suspicious all the time. But, O Lord, may we so glory and rejoice in the truth that when error shows up, it is immediately recognized and immediately shown for what it is. Father, Save us from the self-centered delusion that somehow the arm of the Lord is shortened, that somehow the Spirit of God can no longer work, that somehow we are destined to a clumsy, failing end. But may we truly believe that grace and peace is to be multiplied to us because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together now and sing in response.